Okay, so um, Free Buddhist Audio uh, was sort of this major evolution from Dharma Chakra tapes, mm. as it were. Mm. Um, and my understanding is the sort of what we've just been talking about with the, the seeds that gave rise to yeah. Free Buddhist Audio, which were sown in like 2002, 2003. The site didn't actually launch until late 2006. Um, and so you were working quite a bit during those yeah, yeah. three years uh, to to bring it on board, to bring it online. Um, were there particular, as director, as were there particular principles or values that you felt were really important to uphold, both in the process of development and in the launch itself? And now it's five years on. Five years on. Yeah. Yes. Well, I suppose you know, going back to what I was saying before, the the. The principle for us was to disseminate the Dharma as widely as possible. And the frustration at doing that with an outdated format that was realistically limited to the people who could afford it. So we, you know, we distribute a couple of thousand tapes a year to people who could afford to buy them and order them. And that was great as far as it went, but it seemed a real shame to have this massive resource that was being added to all the time and not really be able to make it more widely available. And people don't line up around the block to buy Buddhist tapes in the way that they do to buy, you know, the latest Lady Gaga album. So there's always going to be that. And I, to be honest, I, I personally, and this is maybe temperamental, I didn't love the idea of selling the Dharma. Not that there's anything in itself wrong with that. I just personally didn't feel inspired by running a business. Mm. I wanted to run something that was much more rooted in uh, the Dharma as a kind of reciprocal act of generosity you know you're you're giving the dharma and i I suppose going back to the 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 buddha himself you know the buddha went wherever the people were and taught and he gave the dharma freely and he was supported by the community and i i felt we really needed to get back to that because running it as a business actually wasn't that easy and wasn't going spectacularly well Mm. in a way that would allow us to to expand and develop And I just didn't want all my energy to, I didn't feel inspired to put all my energy into to a business in that way. So in a way, it sounds like you took a big risk as the director, sort of returning to the roots of Buddhism itself in a way, or the Buddha himself, yeah. and took a risk as a business. That's right, yeah. Well, in a way, it was a process. I, I went through a personal kind of um, process of realising that this is what I wanted to do and what I also thought was the smartest long-term mm-hmm. option, given where the technology was going. But it wasn't apparent to everybody and, you know, it's a very big deal to persuade a, a registered charity or non-profit to give up its income base and move towards a complete reliance on the generosity of individuals mm. who are using it. Mm. And that was not also a model that had been very tested. So that there was a process of, of a couple of years of discussion about that and evolution towards that. And even when everybody had signed up to the principle, how do you do it and how do you, mm. you know, how do you resource it in the meantime? Particularly when you stop selling things, how do you keep yourself going? Mm. So that was a that was a very big complex process and involved lots of generosity from uh, grant giving bodies etc. Who who kept us going while we were making this big transition, mm. and um, and individuals too. We launched a website actually quite early, which maybe a few people remember, called dharmatracker.com, which was really a way to kind of make orders online. We were still selling CDs and, and tapes by mail order, but we, we started to include free downloads at that point, and we had a couple of free downloads that you could you could get just as a way of testing the water. In a way, most people 
probably didn't know what to do with them. They they downloaded them and they would have opened on their Mac or PC and played the file. Um, but you know, this is like pre iTunes, so you know, it would have it would have been something that was very unfamiliar to a lot of people. It was it was nice to be doing those kind of experiments. It was exciting, and you kind of felt. Hmm. This is cool. <laughs> this is cool. This is really cool, and, and and people people did respond and thought it was really cool, and and also responded thinking, well, are you sure this is going to go anywhere as a as a format? Um, but yeah, it was it was good to kind of dip our toes in the water with that and see the possibilities. And at this point, actually, you're talking about the the turn of the. The millennium, so people were using computers much more in a much more everyday way. The internet was becoming part of people's lives. Most people in work had probably had an email account through their work or something, so it wasn't that unfamiliar to people broadly. And, and they were certainly used to starting to listen to things on the internet. Podcasting became big around about that time. Uh, it was a way to disseminate, you know, homebrew radio programs around the world. Um, and of course, when Apple finally embraced podcasting with iTunes when it came out and supported podcasts on iPods, etc., mm. an explosion in the number of people who were interested in consuming audio material in that way, mm. and we were tailor-made for it. So we, in the early days, we had a website that had a few downloads, but we started a podcast, mm. and that podcast, um, you know, once a month we sent a, a talk out into the ether, mm. and you know, I think before Freebird Studio launched, we had. About ten, twelve thousand people a month downloading our podcast wow. and just listening wow. to the talk, and mm. you know that was already a sort of evolution for us. Mm. Behind the scenes, I guess what we were really having to do was sort out the economics of it, think about how we could build this kind of impossible website that was going to give everything away in mm. a kind of really cool, accessible, easy to use fashion. Mm. Mm. And also, we had to get all the material ready, so we had about. 180 odd talks on compact disc the rest were on tape or sometimes mini disc mm. they all had to be transferred by hand over to the computer mm. digitized remastered listened to divided up into tracks and then when we were ready uploaded mm. and that and that was, that, that was me too, <laughs> that took yeah. you, that took a few years of of listening to all that material so we when we launched Freebird Studio eventually um I worked with a friend of mine called Akasha Priya and we, we really only worked together on the actual site for about a year. Mm. But we, we worked quite a bit in the run-up to it and then starting to maintain it afterwards. And Akash Priya was fantastic. He gave his time for free and developed the website for free with me. Mm. Uh, very generous. And it was a very intense process. We both had no idea what we were doing when we started and, and knew a lot more mm. at the end, mm. as you do. And... um we were kind of making it up as we went along, and in the background I was I was doing all this material. And um, when we uploaded the talks to what would become Freebooters Audio, we started with 500 titles. So there were 500 titles that had been indexed and listened to. And um, then we launched this website into this big question mark of space it must have been like this sort of run up of all this energy and focus and, and activity and creativity and then you just it's a big, just, it's a big anti-climax like, if you're ever if you're listening folks and you're ever going to start a big project one thing you should be prepared for unless you happen to be working for Apple or somebody is is a sense of anti-climax because it's, you know fireworks do not go off outside your window 
Nobody, <laughs> nobody fires a 21 gun salute in the air as your sight launches. Mm-hmm. You basically click a button yeah. and it's like, oh, it's done. It's done. And it, <laughs> and the thing is, of course, we've been living with the reality of it. So we had the site up. We were building it on a, on a server the way that you do. And it had been working for months before we launched it. We were tweaking it and fixing things and catching bugs and all the rest of it. And there were some people doing a little, we had a beta test period for a while where we had some private users using the site and giving us their feedback about how usable it was. Mm. And um, when you actually make that public and it goes live, in a certain sense, nobody notices. And this was the day, this was before social networks. So people didn't, you couldn't just make a post on Facebook and say, hey, we did this and a thousand people would see it. You, you know, you have to send postcards to people and, and emails and go to events and announce it. And then deal with the fact that most people in the audience either still weren't interested or didn't understand it. And mm-hmm. some people got it, and that was great. And um, the podcasting thing helped because we had a lot of people who were now at least accustomed to using their computers or their mm-hmm. MP3 players if they could afford them because they were so expensive mm-hmm. to use things. But by, by the time we got to 2006, uh, you know, most people were familiar with the mm-hmm. paradigm with iTunes and I, iPods and mm-hmm. iPhones began to emerge as a possibility just shortly right. thereafter. Right. And um, I think, that, you know, the world had al- already started consuming media in that way, in a big way, mm-hmm. but it, at least we weren't miles behind mm-hmm. this time. Mm-hmm. And actually, in some senses, we were miles ahead of, of most people distributing mm-hmm. audio because mm-hmm. we had a very, very fancy site mm-hmm. by most standards for, mm-hmm. for distributing it. So in 2006, you launched um, Free Boost Audio, went online um, with 500 talks. Mm-hmm. Um, but there was also a whole text archive involved yes, in this too. Was, so yeah. do you want to say a little bit about that? Yep, it was um, it was unexpected. We had no intention of launching for the text archive. It was called Free Boost Audio. And um, it was actually going to be called originally dharmachakra.com until quite close to the launch. Mm. It wasn't called Freebird Study until very close to the launch. I was lying in bed one night and I I can't remember quite what I was thinking about. It was something to do with design. We're thinking about a design element on the site. And I, I just had a bit of a sense that dharmachakra.com, something bothered me about it. It didn't really, it didn't say what it did. And I suppose I was thinking about, well, if, if I came across this and I didn't know what Dharma Chakra was, it wouldn't tell me anything. Mm. And I, I suppose I just kind of had a bit of a brain wave where I kind of thought it should, you know, it should be kind of like it, it does what it says on the tin, mm-hmm. you know. So mm-hmm. if if what you're doing is free Buddhist audio, then why don't you do free Buddhist audio? Call it free Buddhist audio. But why don't you just call it free Buddhist audio? Make a break. Mm with the past as well as a continuity with the mm. past. Mm. So it was very, it was relatively close. I mean, I can't remember now how close, but it was definitely, I'm pretty sure it was six months or so before at the earliest, might be later than that. Mm. And it was probably partly because um, at, shortly thereafter, something came up, which was um, that there was an order member called Sila Badra in England who'd spent years and years and years doing similar work to me, on a, on a transcription archive of Sangharakshita's seminars. And the transcription archive, which I think he'd worked on over the course of about 10 to 15 years wow. at least, wow. were recordings that we had of Sangharakshita in seminar following on from his original lectures that we featured in our catalogue. And this was, these are kind of recordings that weren't available 
where Sangra actually would get together with uh, friends and order members and just study a series of talks that he'd given, maybe over a week, two weeks, and the whole thing was recorded. And Silabhadra, with some other help, but mainly Silabhadra, manfully transcribed all of them mm. <laughs> over years, you know. Mm-hmm. And the archive was available on disc, and it was only available to the order. You could only get it for the order. And it wasn't hugely widely used, but it's a very useful resource, particularly if you wanted to do some in-depth research on a particular Dharma topic that you were interested in. Mm. You had the, the kind of benefit of being able to access this massive uh, 17 million word resource on in-depth engagement with a particular Buddhist theme, the Bodhisattva ideal. Mahayana sutras of different kinds, the, the Buddha's early teachings in the Pali Canon, uh, the, the Triratna approach to the Dharma, all that kind of stuff. Anyway, to cut a long story short, Silabhadra um, wanted to move on. And the archive, his archive of files had no home. And it became apparent that nobody wanted to take this project on. And it was literally just going to be kind of left languishing somewhere. And I I heard about it, and I, I kind of kept waiting for somebody to do something, and then nobody did anything. And I heard that Sila Badger was kind of really, he just wanted to move on and, and leave it behind. So um, eventually, Akasha Pri and I hired a van and drove down, drove down. This is probably um, around about 2004, I think. We drove, hired a van and drove down and picked up the all the boxes with the archive in it including some, some audio material that were kind of backups of the original seminars. And we took them back up the road and just stored them. So we had the storing of the archive that we'd had. Uh, so I maybe got the time frame a bit wrong earlier, actually, because that, that was in 2004. In 2006, when we were going to launch Freebird Audio, um, the disc was no longer available either. Mm. So when the disc was no longer available, you couldn't even really get access to them. So I thought, well, maybe we should somehow make this available on the internet as well, which wasn't really part of the plan. And I, actually, it was interesting, I basically called Sangharakshita. Uh, I didn't um, get to speak to him immediately, I think he called me back or something, and I had this telephone conversation with, with him where I basically said, um, you know, how would you feel about putting all of these things up online and just letting it be a, a resource there that people could search alongside the audio? And he, I thought it was going to take, I thought we'd probably negotiate with him for like a year or something, but he basically called me back a couple of days later and said, that's okay. Hmm. Which in one sense was great, but in another sense wasn't great, because I thought, oh, now we have to do something about it. Because <laughs> <laughs> I thought, well, you know, I can ask him and then we'll have a year to get Freebudist Audio launched and then we can introduce text later. But he said yes immediately. So we decided to delay it for six months and try and build a kind of text search function on the site and that was extremely difficult because the arc the digital version of the archive was in a very um basic state uh, and not in a kind of format without getting into all the technical details not in a format that made it easy to put it up as an online archive mm. that was searchable and indexable and all that stuff so we did our best over six months to cobble something together that worked with this very unprepared mm. archive mm. Then we decided to launch Freebird Studio with text mm-hmm. seminars built in. 
I have this image of two superheroes. <laughs> I don't tell you, they feel like superheroes. But, but you, more like, more like Lauren and Hardy or something, I don't know. But you hired the van and you kind of... <laughs> drove down to Brighton. You cared. You cared. And it delayed, yeah, we did care. Yeah, it we delayed cared. the work that you had been working on for, for And actually, years. and friendship was a big part of it. Akasha Pri and I joined the order together mm-hmm. and um, knew each other. We did Mitra study together, listening to the tapes together. Akasha Priya worked in Cambridge. In fact, Akasha Priya came and picked me up in Glasgow in a in a Windhorse van when I moved to Cambridge oh. and, and took me down to start my new job. So and he didn't even know me at that point. He just he just, he just volunteered to come up and pick me up. Really amazing connection. Oh. So we followed that connection through as a thread of friendship, joined the order together, mm. came back and did this project together. So we joined the order in two thousand and one. And between 2001 and 2006, you know, we developed a friendship and in time collaborated on what became Freebird Studio. Wow. Nice story. Yeah. <laughs>